Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's on! Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Reza. As listeners know, there's been a new level of tragedy unfolding in the Middle East this week. Hamas attacked Israel on Saturday. The images and reports are just horrific and unconscionable. Israel has responded by ordering a complete siege of Gaza, which the UN Secretary General has already referred to as hell on earth. So it just looks like things are going to get worse before they get worse. And it's absolutely heartbreaking for us to see the loss of so many innocent civilians. Yes. We're preparing an episode next week with Christiane Amanpour, who, of course, has been covering global affairs in the Middle East since the 1980s. She's one of my heroes as a reporter. And I think she'll have a lot to say about what's happening and give us some real context. Um, She's been doing great uh, coverage on CNN um, so far. And uh, we hope to get a lot of thoughts of where it's going and show what's going on in the past uh, as to what's going to happen next. But today we're tackling another subject, which still seems relevant, which is what happens when you're confronted with people who disagree with you. It's a conversation we taped last week with NPR journalist Steve Inskeep. Steve is the host of NPR's Morning Edition and their morning podcast, Up First, and has been the voice of NPR's morning news for almost 20 years, and many millions of Americans wake up to him every day. Do you wake up with Steve Inskeep every day, I don't. Day, I don't. Oh. I, don't. Um, I do. I do, actually. Um, he's perhaps best known as the journalist Donald Trump hung up on yeah. when Inskeep kept challenging the former president's efforts to repeatedly question and lie about the 2020 election. He just hung up on him. Well, what a surprise. Would you have called him back, Kara? I would have, <laughs> if I had his number, for sure. I mean, I would say, oh, did you by accident hung up on me? No. Um, you know, Donald Trump gives ridiculous interviews to people for, for the most part and just talks over people. So not a surprise that he would do something like that. Inskeep likes talking to people who disagree with him, he says, and he's turned to history to examine our divides. He's got a new book out. It's called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. And it's structured around these kind of key moments and key relationships that Abraham Lincoln had on topics of disagreement, really difficult topics. Topics, topics like slavery. And there have been something like 15,000 books, I think, written about Lincoln, Kara. So yeah. it's hard to find a new angle. What stuck out to you about this one? You know, Lincoln has, has been sort of one of the great figures of history. And he figured out how to get along with people he didn't get along with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a team of rivals. That was Doris Kearns Goodwin's book. Um, he wanted for people who didn't agree to get to agreement. And that's why I'm interested in this, because right now we have a lot of people not getting to agreement on a wide range of things. Um, you know, let's leave the Middle East out of this because this is an entirely different and incredibly horrific situation. But in this country right now, we have that happening almost continually in Congress and between and among people. And so it's a really important topic to talk about. Yeah. And this book is really a political strategy book in a lot of ways, because one of Inskeep's major points is that political leaders and democracies need to have majorities, which seems super obvious, but it seems also pertinent in today's climate. And I have to ask you, going into this conversation, were you skeptical about the idea that lessons from Lincoln apply to today? No, I I don't. I think it's a good way to write about it. I mean, I don't think you can hang every hat on Lincoln, which people tend to try to do. Um, Incredible politician, incredible uh, statesman, and obviously a visionary in many ways. Um, Beautiful writer, beautiful conversationalist, etc. So it's not an unusual thing to use him. You know, that was one of the 
most difficult points in American history, of the many difficult points in American history, and he managed to make it work, even despite the great loss of life, despite all these things, as he managed to get it through in a time where nobody thought they could get through. And I think that's why people keep looking back at him. And Biden has been, you know, kind of ran on this idea of bipartisanship and has passed a lot of bills that have gotten bipartisan support, including the CHIPS Acts and others. Um, And yet, He's lambasted for it sometimes as compromising. I'm just curious, if you study political economy, there's this world where, okay, in primaries, you're going to get these extreme politicians, but over the course of a representative democracy, you're going to get some medium voter theory, right? That seems like it happens less now with the likes of Trump. Well, I think I think three things have happened. Gerrymandering, social mm-hmm. media, and something like Fox News, uh, you know, that has, has created a constant division. You need characters. Uh, Elon Musk does it over at Twitter. Everyone's an enemy. Everyone's aggrieved and angry. And so it both makes money and it also brings power. 100%. And do you think that the social media has shifted journalistic coverage, which is something we're going to talk to Steve about as well. Everything's been affected by it and in not a good way, in a reductive and grievance-filled way. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's something I, I, I can't imagine Lincoln being around if there was Twitter. That would, I don't know if we, I think we'd still be in the middle of a civil war. Well, we're not in a civil war now, which is not, something that you see in headlines a, a cold lot. cold civil war is what's happening. Do you, think, okay. you think it's a civil I do. war? I do. Yes, I wow. do. Okay. Well, that was a key question that we wanted to ask Stephen Skeep. And we also wanted to ask him about the role of journalists in a world where there's so much disagreement um, and about the unique role that NPR plays because they have something like 44 million people that they reach. And yet it's a public radio station and one that receives some public funding. Mm-hmm. We're going to head into our conversation with Stephen Skeep in a moment. But we should note we tape with Steve on Thursday on the heels of Kevin McCarthy being booted out of the House. You and I are talking Wednesday afternoon. And as if they knew we were going to be taping, the Republicans have just, they've just concluded their closed door, no phones meeting, and have delivered a nomination, which is Steve Scalise for the House Speaker. That feels compromising. I like it. I don't like him very much, but sure. (laughs) This oh, is not Jim not Jordan. The reaction I expected from you. Kara. Well, I, look, it's like, would you like this toxic waste dump or this <laughs> toxic waste dump? I don't know. I just look. He's not Jim Jordan. Is really pretty much my feeling on things. Well, some members, as they were leaving um, chambers and and speaking to journalists, like Max Miller from Ohio, uh, said that they're still going to vote for Jim Jordan. So, I'll be curious to see if by the time people hear this, there is a vote that's happened and if Steve Scalise has stuck. They're working on all, the entire country's last nerve, the Republicans. So just get yourself a leader and start passing bills. That's your job. Do your job. That's my feeling. All right. Sounds like you disagree with them. I do. I'd like them to do their job. That's I think that's, I think most Americans would like them to do their job. So oh, you're going to use a word there. Yes, I was going to say fucking job, but like, you know, whatever. All right. Uh, well, you disagree with them. Stephen Skeep has a point of view about disagreement. Let's see if Lincoln can help you, Kara. Okay. Take a quick break and we'll be back. This episode is brought to you by On Investing, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Each week, Hosts Liz Ann Saunders, Schwab's Chief Investment Strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's Chief Fixed Income Strategist, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around equities, fixed income, the economy, and more. Join Kathy, Liz Ann, and their guests as they share insights on what might be moving the markets and why, as well as what indicators they are watching for signs of change. They'll also answer investor questions on everything from how sectors are evolving to what the bond markets are telling us where to look for opportunities and considerations for your portfolio. You can download the latest episode of On Investing and subscribe so you never miss an episode at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Greenlight. Look, if you're anything like me, then I'm confident you wanted to make a really dumb purchase back in the day. Maybe you thought that boombox you got would last a lifetime or just wanted way too many high-waisted jeans. We've all been there. You live, you learn. But if you're a parent, you want to be able to pass those financial lessons you learned onto your kids in a way that sticks. That's where Greenlight Card comes in. It can help your kids actually learn how to make smart financial decisions at an early age. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. 
You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications on spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. I think it's important for kids to understand how to get on a good path for financial success and what spending means and where the money's coming from. And one of the things that's important is to teach them how to manage money from an early age. And the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach them money skills in a fun, memorable way. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash Kara. That's greenlight.com slash Kara to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash Kara. Welcome, Steve. This has been a, a difficulty getting you online. Aren't you the audio guy? You would think that I would be, but I'm traveling and everything's always a little tricky when you travel, at least for me. But you sound great now. And of course, your voice Thank is so you. well known to millions and millions of listeners uh, from Thank NPR. You for um, I will be talking a little bit about NPR, but I want to start with your new book, uh, which is called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, which seems particularly pertinent today and this past year. It's about the political life of Abraham Lincoln through the lens of disagreement. We're taping right after the House ousted Kevin McCarthy with former President Donald Trump in court and subject to a gag order because of his bad behavior. We obviously have been in a long period of high polarization and partisanship. It's not the Civil War, obviously, but it's not good. So let's start by looking back. Differ We Must is about Lincoln as a brilliant strategist more than anything else. You structure the book around 16 relationships that shaped his career and legacy, um, all due to how he disagreed with these folks and how he did so in a constructive way. Explain your concept of doing this. Yeah, I started wanting to illuminate a diverse America. Uh, I was thinking about the different kinds of people that were in the United States in the 19th century. White men had all the power or 99.99% of the power, um, mm -hmm. but there were all kinds of people. And I thought if I had Lincoln meeting with a diverse group of characters, different races, different genders, different classes, different backgrounds, I would illuminate the country. But as I got into it, and as things continued getting worse and worse in the journalism that I do every day, uh, mm -hmm. I realized, you know, difference or disagreement really was the story not just difference, but disagreement. Um, and I feel that that is true regardless of your political perspective at the moment. Uh, I mean, you mm -hmm. can think about this from the Democrats' point of view, where you have very progressive people who want big change in the country, and they do not have any power in Congress unless they also have the support of more conservative people like Joe Manchin, who progressives can't stand. Um, but we could look over at the Republican Party right now. Um, the essence of politics in a democracy, if you're going to have a democracy, is to have a majority a majority to do the right thing or as close to the right thing as you can get away with, which seems to be something that a lot of people forget. And as you and I are talking, there's this drama that has unfolded in the House of Representatives yeah. where Kevin McCarthy couldn't keep his majority. And honestly, I mean, uh, Matt Gates doesn't have a majority either. I have no idea, as you and I are talking, what anybody's going to do to make a majority there. So let's talk about that Republican Party right now. I'm looking at a headline in The Washington Post that said, McCarthy ouster exposes the Republican Party's destructive tendencies. Well, that's kind of an understatement of the year. Um, talk a little bit about that idea. Let's use Lincoln as the formative thing. He obviously, there was so much partisanship, so much disagreement happening during his term and, and in the years leading up to it. Yeah. And I guess we should say, I mean, Lincoln was in many ways a partisan. Uh, he was a member mm -hmm. in his early years of what was called the Whig Party, which was one of the two major parties. And he was a very loyal party guy who did partisan things. Right. But he realized that he needed a majority for his point of view. And as it developed, he was an anti-slavery politician at a time when it would be hard to get 51% for any particular view of slavery. There were people who were for it. There were people who were against it. There were people who said it was evil but didn't really care or had all kinds of rationalizations for why not too much should be done about it. And Lincoln mm -hmm. needed to assemble a coalition without giving up his principles, without giving up his basic point of view. Lincoln wanted uh, a coalition that could, could, could win. 
Um, and that, mm-hmm. I think, is an essential skill that people have seem to have forgotten the basics uh, about today. It's not about agreement. It's about getting people necessarily, which I think most people yeah. think it's getting to agreement. Um, I'd love you to shed some light on the best examples of this within the book. Here's a really hard example. A morally perilous choice that Lincoln made. He participated in building a new political party in the 1850s. It was the Republican Party. It started as an anti-slavery party. Uh, issues were very different, and it just stood for different things than it does today. And so people should not necessarily bring whatever uh, beliefs or prejudices they have about the Republican Party when they they hear about it. It was an anti-slavery party. Mm -hmm. It was a mainstream party, and it was trying to build political support. And Lincoln took part in this in the state of Illinois. And he realized that in order to build an anti-slavery majority— to have enough voters to have a chance to win an election. He was running for the United States Senate in 1858. He desperately needed the votes of people who could be persuaded to vote against slavery, but also hated immigrants. They were nativists. They were know-nothings, as they were called at the time. There were these uh, secret societies that had spread across the country, vowing to keep foreigners out of government and vowing to make sure that foreigners could not vote very often and talking about conspiracy theories about Catholics being used by the Pope to take over America, on and on and on. Uh, In some ways, familiar themes that we hear about today. He realized he needed to get some of those people to vote for him. He found their anti-immigrant views disgusting. He actually said, if they ever win power, I would rather move to Russia, where they make no pretense of loving liberty. But he needed their votes, Mm -hmm. and he was very active in trying to get them. He had a friend, actually many friends among the nativists, and he appealed to them to get their voters for him. Give me a specific example of these relationships in the book. Um, Joseph Gillespie, is the key person that I'm thinking of, who had been a friend of Lincoln's for 20 years. In fact, they'd been in the state legislature together. They were close friends. And yet Gillespie had these nativist views that were so repulsive that Lincoln could hardly bear to to talk to the guy when he went off about it. Mm -hmm. And yet Lincoln wrote him again and again, said, do everything you can to get your voters, who interestingly enough were called the American voters, get your voters to vote for me, to vote for my side in this upcoming election. I need at least four-fifths of them. Lincoln even went and appeared on stage with this guy at at least two campaign events. This is the kind of thing Mm -hmm. that uh, you would be shredded for today. You would be questioned constantly, why were you on stage with this uh, repulsive person? And I'll be honest, I mean, I would have my own questions about that. I would wonder, like, what do you mean by that? How far is appropriate to go to reach out for people? But Lincoln's fundamental insight, which does apply to us today, is that even if the person across the table has repulsive views, they still have power because they have the vote, Mm -hmm. so long as we do have a democracy anyway. So talk about that idea of repulsive views, because, you know, now everyone just junks on Twitter. Does that kind of dialogue happen in U.S. politics where people swallow things? In private, it certainly does. But in public, it just doesn't happen because everything's performative. Yeah, everything is performative. And a lot of the differences seem to me to be about shallow differences or memes almost, rather than serious substantive Mm -hmm. differences, even though there are obviously big divides and big issues facing the country, which we could talk about. But here is a current world example. Um, Joe Biden, early in his presidential campaign, kind of boasted at some point that in his early career in the 1970s, he had dealt with segregationists in the United States Senate and he had occasionally Mm -hmm. gotten things done. And he was fiercely criticized by some in his own party for bragging about that sort of thing. Why would you associate with these people? And if you're going to get something done, you may need that that vote. And that's a thing that that Lincoln did. He was even reaching out to literal slave owners, befriending them, Mm -hmm. working with them. When When he became president and the Civil War came, started by the South over slavery, he tried to persuade some slave states and slave owners to stay in the Union, and he succeeded drawing on some of his own personal relationships with slave owners. I was just thinking about Diane Feinstein, who just died, and and mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham was giving quite a persuasive argument about that um, because she hugged him um, and got a lot of attacks for doing so, and mm-hmm. she was well known to be partisan, which used to be celebrated. Um, 
Lindsey Graham was saying that 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 she would reach across the aisle. That was the point he was making. Yes, that and it was a good thing. But now, but of course, she got attacked when she did that in a recent uh, Supreme Court nomination battle. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, McCarthy just lost his job for a bipartisan vote. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, we don't even need to label that the right thing. It was just like the normal thing to pass legislation to keep the government open. And McCarthy lost his job over that. So that's there's clearly a different point of view that is widespread, that working with somebody on the other side is, is a really bad idea. I just want to underline a distinction. This is the distinction that I think people draw. I don't think that we have to stand up and cheer if someone works across the aisle to pass something that is bad, (laughs) you know, to pass Mm -hmm. terrible legislation or to approve some disaster or to discriminate against some part of the population or any number of things. But you might, uh, if you're thinking the way that Lincoln did, consider or be open to the possibility that people on your side might find coalitions with voters who believe differently than you on eight or nine out of 10 issues, but on the one or two, you can work together. Right. So you wrote about this um, as Lincoln, as someone who knew people, especially their interests. You're talking about their interests. Um, Yeah. Why did he focus on it versus their beliefs or anything else since it was calculated. This was a revelation to me. This is a thing that I did not understand, even though I grew up in Indiana where he spent a lot of his youth and I always read about Lincoln and have had like books of his speeches around the house and and so forth. Um, I, I hadn't really thought through like, how did he motivate people? What did he think about people? Um, and he told his friend and law partner, William Herndon, that he believed that people were motivated by self-interest, um, which Mm -hmm. is kind of dark, but also is kind of obvious if you think about it. And he realized that he needed to appeal to their interests. And he talks about their interests in his letters and speeches way more than more, uh, you know, higher moral concepts. Um, even though he hoped to harness people's self-interest behind a moral cause, uh, he realized that he needed to talk with them about it. Like when you share an interest with someone, you may have a basis for collaboration. Well, obviously, slavery is such a, an impossible issue to agree on. Then, ultimately, he did go to war, right? That Ultimately, it yeah. didn't quite work out yeah. that way. Um, but extrapolate it today on something like abortion, which is what, you know, it seems like there's just no give anywhere. And even yeah. someone like Trump is trying to say, well, maybe 15 weeks or maybe there's a middle ground or... Well, Trump is wanting to win an election, I suppose. He wants something right. that's going to yeah. appeal to people. Right. Um, and I mean, he right. was pro-choice once upon a time, if memory serves. So mm-hmm. I mean, he's kind of mm-hmm. f- frank about what he wants out of that that uh, transaction. But but you made the remark about the Civil War, which I think is very perceptive and very important to 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 talk about. Reaching over to the other side doesn't mean giving up your principles. There was a line beyond which Lincoln could not and would not go. He was asked by a slave owner. This is one of the 16 meetings. He was urged by a slave owner that he'd known for years named Duff Green, this newspaper man and propagandist, urged to Mm -hmm. accept a compromise with the South. And the compromise was they would enshrine slavery in the Constitution forever, along with a number of other things. And Lincoln uh, talked to the guy But ultimately, he and his party could not go along with that kind of compromise. And Mm -hmm. so there was ultimately there was a war which was started by the South. He did not always make a deal with the other side. And I would not pretend now that we can always make a deal with the other side, nor are we supposed to in a democracy? We're supposed to disagree. What we need if we want to improve the country is not everyone to agree with us, but for a majority, a governing majority to agree. Sure, but the middle path, you know, doesn't seem to get there because of the partisans on each side are so much louder. Like, well, that's that's certainly a problem in in the House right now. Like a lot of issues, there are there is broad agreement. Gun gun control is a good issue, uh, and yet the the two sides or one side, in particular in that case, really just is not letting it happen. Like the minority does rule versus a middle path is what you're talking about. What Lincoln tried to do, yeah, and like let's even for the purposes of argument suppose that Matt Gates is correct substantively. This is just for the purposes mm-hmm. of this question. Um, and I'm not mm-hmm. even sure what his substantive position is, to be honest with you. But let's just suppose that that were the one, case. Yeah. yeah that th- let's say there's mm-hmm. one lawmaker who is right about everything. 
um, the way that democracy works just is not that one person uh, governs everything and dictates to the other people from whatever position. There is a point at which this is democratic and normal and within our traditions and checks and balances and filibusters and everything else we do. There is another point beyond which it ceases to be democracy at all and someone is playing some other kind of game. But talk about that idea because the tendency is actually for people to try to get along. Is there a difference, though, between engaging in with disagreement and both sidesism? You know, I, um, I'm thinking of the Christian Amanpour quote, be truthful, not neutral. Well, I I totally agree with that, and I I actually think that that a lot of the answer to that in journalism is to be really really specific. Make sure that you really know the story. Um, the Republicans and Democrats are not alike. They each have their own foibles and failings, and each have their own strengths and and so forth. And and we need to be really specific and honest uh, about that. And that doesn't mean we have to proclaim that this guy is evil and this person is 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 one hundred percent good. We just have to be really frank uh, about it. You said that it's natural to try to get along. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of human tendency, but there is another tendency that I think is really evident today, which is to say that it is horrifying and immoral to talk with someone who is wrong from your yeah. lights on a particular issue. And there's a tendency, even if you don't think it's immoral, to just say it's like weak and naive. Um, I mean, I guess mm -hmm. that's the Matt Gates view. Like, why are you dealing with these, these Democrats? You're betraying my side and you're being weak. Yeah, there's a quote actually from the New York Times today, which is very pertinent. But in today's Republican Party, doing the right thing is considered a transgression, not a virtue, a sign of unforgivable allegiance to the political establishment. How can the GOP come to any kind of common aid, given the huge delta of interest between Democrats and Republicans and then within the GOP itself? Well, clearly nobody has figured this one out. So I don't know that I am here, except that if we are going to stay in a democratic system, I mean, the, the, the winning side needs to assemble a majority. And if you're a Democrat who wants to govern the country, that forces you to think in certain ways. Like you need to, to, to be reaching out to red states in some manner. And I don't necessarily mean change your positions, but somehow you need to have more of a purchase in red states so that you don't have the disadvantage that Democrats have in the Electoral College and in the United States Senate. Um, if you are a Republican, you would need to think about the way that you ran the last election. Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. would not have been unseated by a relative handful of his colleagues had Republicans run a different campaign and had a more normal result for the party out of power in the midterm election. They underperformed, which is why his majority was so small and he finally ended up losing his job. So is your audience for the book someone like Matt Gates? Is he going to read this? I don't, I'm not sure he can read and be swayed by it. Um, who is the I do, audience I don't, then? I, I, would be, I would be happy if I Mr. Gates— That was a joke on my part. It was very mean when I meant joke. it. I understand. I understand. I'm, I'm, I, noted as a joke. Um, I'd be happy noted. if he reads the book. I'd be happy if anybody reads the book. But I guess I am aiming at people who are interested in history and interested in taking the long view— um, which is a thing that uh, I think Lincoln did and that I at least try to do. Um, I, it gives mm -hmm. me a, a little better perspective and at least a little more confidence about our unsettled world when I uh, think a hundred years back or 150 years back. And I would hope that it gives me some idea of which things are important and, and which are not. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I mm -hmm. say that some of our divisions are surface. They're uh, media creations. They're memes. They're, they're not really about uh, 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 anything for a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of issues we discuss that don't really touch a lot of the people who get fired up and end up voting one sure. way or, or another. And, and uh, the long view gives you a little a little more patience, I think, with some of these things. So you told your colleague, Scott Simon, that while writing the book and simultaneously covering the news of today, that disagreements you focus on the books were, quote, really, really relevant to today. Um, does it feel like the same time to you, like right now? Um, we'll get into people thinking we're Kara, in a there are, it doesn't, doesn't feel like the same time, but the resonances to me are amazing. Um, 
uh, as as you may notice flipping through here, I gave a kind of title to each kind of person who came to meet with Abraham Lincoln. There is an mm-hmm. activist, there's a conspiracy theorist, and I suppose one of the reasons that I did that, not to be too obvious, is that I feel that I have seen similar kinds of people today. We are operating within the same basic republic, although, of course, there have been changes and amendments, but the basic separation of powers, Congress, President, Supreme Court, all the same as they were then, divisions between state and federal government, all the same, and human nature is the same. And so when I read, for example, the paranoid conspiracy theories of Duff Green, it sounds really familiar. The enemy, the anti-slavery people, are bringing in immigrants to cast millions of illegal votes to end Mm -hmm. slavery. Um, like, where have we heard that kind of theory before of connecting immigration with illegal voting? Like, it's it's amazing to me that the kind of rhetorical tropes persist. Yeah, I think we heard it yesterday. I believe poisoning, whatever. <laughs> there was a yesterday. I believe. Um, is there? You know, obviously Lincoln navigated the country during a civil war. There's a lot of chatter about how we're on the brink of a civil war now. A few headlines: sure. the threat of civil breakdown is real by Stephen Simon and John Stevenson in Politico earlier this year. These are the conditions ripe for violence. How close is the U.S. to civil war? By Barbara Walter in the Guardian in last November. How to save the U.S. from the second civil war? By Peter Coleman in Time Magazine in October of last year. Um, mm. Do you think there's any merit? to these headlines? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, I, I'm not saying there, I'm not saying we can't have another civil war. I just don't see it right now. Um, I don't see something like slavery that would cut between us so cleanly that the red states would peel off from the blue states or that you would have Marjorie Taylor Greene's national divorce or that the blue dots of cities mm-hmm. would go to war against the countryside. But I want to emphasize that doesn't mean there's not going to be political violence because political violence has very often been with us. It was with us on January 6th. That was a new event to try to disrupt an election in that exact way. But especially in times of social change, there has been a lot of terrorism of different kinds or even state-sponsored attacks on people in different parts of the country. We'll be back in a minute. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Babbel. Learning a new language doesn't just give you dozens of new ways to swear. Studies show that people who learn new languages develop better memories and get more comfortable solving difficult problems. In turn, confidence improves and perspectives open, allowing for more flexibility no matter what life brings to the table. If you're ready to make a new language part of your routine, Babbel can help. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with lessons created by real people for real conversations. Babbel doesn't rely on artificial intelligence to build its 10-minute lessons. Instead, they are handcrafted by more than 200 language experts focused on teaching phrases and vocabulary you'll actually need to communicate. I've used Babbel myself. I'm trying to learn Spanish since I spent four years trying to learn it in high school and then again in college. And I have to say, I'm doing a lot better with Babbel. I use it on the go when I'm traveling. It's super easy to do these 10-minute, five-minute lessons. It reminds me every day, and I do it. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at Babbel dot com slash swisher get up to 60 percent off at babble.com slash swisher spelled b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash swisher rules and restrictions may apply support for this show comes from ramp are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses vendor payments and accounting is your finance software just not cutting it or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash Kara. 
ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P.com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Many people are, are worried about what's ahead, and you've reported on the last seven presidential elections. How do you look ahead? How will 2024 be different? Okay, um, let's think about that. First, I kind of avoid reporting on the future, so I may be a little evasive here. Um, We presume that we know both nominees. We presume that we know how it is all going to shake out, but of course we don't. We don't know for certain. Um, I mean, we we, we don't know that that both of the nominees, the presumed nominees, will be healthy a year from now. I mean, it's there's there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, it could be that 2022 gives us a little bit of forecast of what it's like that you have Republicans who make a particular approach in particular places. You have Democrats who run somewhat on President Biden's record and somewhat more on the argument that the other side is very, very dangerous. Um, I think we can presume a you know reasonably stable economy, although, of course, that's that's hard to predict. And then it comes down to a few questions about coalitions. Uh, and I'll, I'll name two. One I've already alluded to. Democrats are in grave danger of losing the United States Senate. And what they mm-hmm. need to keep a majority in the United States Senate is to win several, most, almost all of about six red states that voted for Donald Trump or that are somewhat divided and purple, states ranging from West Virginia to to Arizona, which is turning blue, but not all the way. And they, they need to prevail in the majority of those races, which is going to be a lot of work. Republicans have their own version of that challenge. And Never mind what the polls say. The polls right now show Trump and Biden reasonably close. Anybody could win. And I would Mm -hmm. agree that if those two guys are the nominees, I wouldn't, you know, want to forecast for sure that anybody would win. But Republicans have had massive erosion of their vote in suburbs that were Republican a generation ago or even five or six Mm -hmm. or seven years ago. And they would need to persuade people in those suburbs that they're not too extreme, that they can get something done, that they're not solely about chaos, as McCarthy alleged that a faction of his party was. And so each Mm -hmm. party can expect that its fate will be determined by its success in building a broader coalition. How's that for an evasive, but somehow on topic? (laughs) Well, okay, looming civil war or not, I'm going to ask sort of one more Lincoln-related question in his methods of governments. Where where can people like Trump and Biden, where do they fit? How Lincoln-like or unlike are each of them? Oh, okay. Well, Biden has been almost explicit about the comparison to Lincoln, uh, which is not surprising Mm -hmm. since he was Obama's vice president and Obama invited the comparisons to Lincoln by opening his campaign um, at the old Illinois state capitol where Lincoln once worked back in 2008. And obviously, as the first black president, he has this connection to Lincoln. Biden's politics, though, and I'm not going to say that he succeeds necessarily, but Biden's effort as a politician is to do a little bit of what I'm describing Lincoln doing, getting people under the tent for as much business as you can get done, regardless of whether you agree or disagree on everything. You think that um, you think in Biden's case, we'll get to Trump in a minute, but do you think that's real or or opportunistic? I think that, well, I, I think that, that he wants to win. I think that he, you know, he is of a different generation. He has a particular style of politics that he prefers, um, which has been justified to the extent that he has won a hard-fought presidential election. Well, let me draw a comparison here, if you don't mind. Um, Lincoln was a person who, in his political approach to slavery, could be described as uh, a moderate, as not all that mm-hmm. radical. The solutions that he proposed for slavery before the Civil War were not that radical because he acknowledged that the Constitution and the structure of the country at that time made it almost impossible to destroy in the states that practiced it. So he said, let's contain it. Let's limit its its spread. That Mm -hmm. sounded like a squishy kind of moderate position, but because it got him into power and because history moved in a certain way... uh, it became a radical position. 
it led to the South objecting, seeing the threat that this moderate position posed, starting a war for the preservation of slavery, which allowed Lincoln to destroy slavery, to strike a, strike a death blow against mm-hmm. slavery. So you, you, you have Biden, and in no way am I saying, you know, Biden is on Lincoln's level. I mean, we other people can judge. But he is matching, in some cases, relatively moderate rhetoric with really large legislation that uh, that that is a lot of what progressives say they want and very upsetting to mm-hmm. a lot of conservatives. Uh, in the first couple of years, when they had control of Congress, they passed a lot of stuff. They did a lot of progressive things, even though his rhetoric, his rhetorical and political approach is not necessarily terribly progressive. So that is a kind of American style of politics. Now you want Trump, I suppose. Right. Trump. Um, yes, I do. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, I, I would say that I would say that Trump is uh, can can be said to resemble Lincoln in not in his political style, but in his innovative and creative use of the media. Um, Lincoln oh, okay. was was not very active on Twitter uh, or <laughs> X, as they now call it, and yet he was someone who wrote apparently hundreds of newspaper articles as a younger politician. They would typically be unsigned. They were occasionally satirical. They were often partisan, but they were getting his view out of the world. He worked the media really hard. His um, his friend and law partner, William Herndon, said of him that Lincoln never overlooked a newspaper man who had an opportunity to say a good or bad thing about him, which does remind me actually a little bit of Trump, who made himself extremely accessible to the media. That was his rise in the world. Uh, his cultivation mm-hmm. of the media was at least, if not more important than whatever success he he managed to gin up in, 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 in business. And in Trump's connection to the people who support him, there is something of a similarity with Lincoln, who cast this image as a man of the people, as an ordinary man of the people. And people did feel, and even today, feel that he is a relatable person, even though he's in many ways really quite mysterious. Does his legal fate um, affect that? How does that play out? Or is it something he's using? Of course, he's doing it every day in court. He's doing it on Twitter or Truth Social, wherever he happens to be wandering this is, uh, I, you know, we, we talked about 2024, and I didn't even talk about the trials. I literally don't understand how this is supposed to work, that there are really going to be trials in March and another one waiting for later in March and another one in May and another one not even scheduled. And this is absolutely the same time that there are supposed to be presidential primaries. I have no idea how that part is um, supposed to work. Uh the only thing that would give me hope that we will even get through that is that our systems have held together up to now. Um, and, but, and, and I suppose it seems well, it's, unlikely. It seems to, to be boosting him. It seems to be boosting oh, these charges. Absolutely. You I know. mean, there's, there's, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history on this, which you probably know very well. As we're talking, I'm in Boston, um, where James Michael Curley, if I'm getting his name correctly, was repeatedly elected mayor of Boston, even briefly was governor of Massachusetts, and he was in and out of prison constantly, constantly under investigation, and had been literally in prison early in his political career and went back later. And he was someone who made a very Trump-like appeal. The elites are coming after me. The, the elites don't like me because I'm like you and they don't like you. There's something very human and something very American about that. The thing that is new and disturbing and hard to get your brain around is it happening at the presidential level. I mean, in some ways, um, it's unusual of someone who's considered to be an insurrectionist in 2021 is elected back into office in 2024. Kind of feels like if Jefferson Davis oh, ran and won know, the presidency oh, post-war. Hey, hey, you know, Kara, I mean, there there were a, there was a danger of that happening after the Civil War. Um, the Republican Party, this anti-slavery party, got to dominate the country and the government when 11 Southern states said, we're out of here, and they took their representatives out of Congress. And when the war Mm -hmm. ended, one of the great conundrums of that moment was that the Republicans realized, if we let the South back in, 
their representatives will be voting, and in combination, they would be Democrats almost exclusively, in combination with Northern Democrats, they might end up in charge of the country. Um, and that mm -hmm. caused an awful lot of struggle and debate. So I'm, I'm not even too surprised there would be that kind of that that kind of of danger. I grant that that everything here is like on a different level and very weird, and yet these are things that Americans have struggled with before. So let's focus, speaking of that, the media's role. You talk about Trump and the media. The debate on how to cover Trump has been all over newsrooms and will be back again in 2024. Uh, you had sure. your own encounter with Trump uh, walking out of your interview um, yeah. back in January of last 2022. Newsrooms have not decided how to deal with this still. Um, I'd love to know where you fall in this debate and if it's evolved. As I said, Christian Amanpour said, be truthful, not neutral. Wes Lowry has talked about the need for moral clarity. Um, where do you fall in this debate over objectivity in journalism, especially now? I want to go for a different term, if I can. Specificity. Sure. And I'm thinking specifically right. about Trump's trials. Um, we have this tradition in the country, and it is a legal tradition that people are innocent until proven guilty. And Trump now mm -hmm. stands accused of violating various federal and state laws. And so he has a presumption of innocence in court. I would even accept that he has a presumption of innocence among the public. I mean, I can't say for sure how a jury is going to find on all of these scores of counts and whether they're going to find he violated the law here or here or here. That is a legal matter. Right. But as a matter of fact, we don't have to pretend we're not sure if he tried to overthrow the government. We, we don't have to pretend we're not sure if he tried to overturn an election that he obviously lost because he did that in the open in front of everybody. There are recordings. There are videos. Uh, everyone witnessed it. Uh, thousands of election officials from both political parties testified to the results mm -hmm. of the election. So I don't want uh, the news organization that I work for, anyway, to be saying Trump allegedly tried to overturn the election. He tried to overturn his defeat. Uh, although I will give, will grant, we'll find out if that is found to be as a legal matter, a violation of some particular, some particular federal law. That's what I mean by specificity. If we can just be more exact, um, a lot of these problems, problems go away. Does that not get him off the hook in a lot of ways? It's only because he's not been indicted, correct? I don't well, know. How does it get him off the convicted. hook? Really? How, how does it get him yeah. off the hook? Because we're still saying what we know. What we know is he tried to mm -hmm. overturn his election defeat. And we even know how and he did it. And what we know he's been so indicted. And we know he's been yeah. indicted. Right. Yeah. We I mean, know. we don't right. we don't know what a jury is going to find. We don't know if he's going to remember to ask for a jury. Uh, we, we don't know a, a lot of things about how these trials were unfold. And we can cover them relentlessly and fairly fairly to everyone involved, including the defendant, while also be being honest and very, very frank about the facts that we know from our own reporting and our own eyewitness accounts. Okay. So when you're thinking about it, how to interview him, what would you ask him right now? Hmm. Um, let me think about that for a minute. Uh, because it was it was a frustrating interview. It was illuminating in a way until he hung up. Explain what happened. We were on the phone. Mm -hmm. He called in. We had agreed to talk for 15 minutes, uh, and he uh, made a number of statements that were untrue, and I had an obligation talking with him in an interview that was going to be broadcast as an interview to correct the record a number of times, uh, and then slightly less than 10 minutes in, uh, he'd had enough and hung up. Um, and mm -hmm. that was a, a, a challenging experience, although we did learn a little bit about his state of mind, his attitude and state of mind. It'd be worth talking mm -hmm. with Trump again, I suppose, sometime. You'd want to interview him again. You'd I want would, to interview I, him. Yes, I would want important. to inter interview him in the way that I interview a lot of difficult people or people who are controversial. Um, I might actually begin with a tactical question. I might begin just by asking, how do you plan to juggle your various trials with your presidential campaign? Just tell me how that's going to work okay. on a day-by-day -day mm -hmm. basis. Do you think that there'll be days that you're in court and then that evening you go out to a rally? Do you think you'll schedule the, mm -hmm. the rallies to be convenient to the courts? Do you intend to show up for your trial? <laughs> So logistics, uh, I know logistics. Yeah, I, I think that might be the beginning of a conversation because that's part of what we're wrestling with, isn't it? Like, what on earth is mm -hmm. it going to look yeah. like if any of these trials really begin on time? 
Right, right. So I'm wondering if these coverage decisions with someone like Trump or what's happened to the Republicans matter when people are self-selecting their news and they're in their silos um, and discredit anything else that they hear. You know, everybody has Um, family members who do that, have different points of view. Let me just say, um, Gallup reported trust in media has remained at an all-time low. It's never been high, but it's low. um, That's one of those questions that um, I would almost want to be more specific with an individual uh, when people are mm-hmm. asked about the media, I think that the world is really mm-hmm. complicated. Stories are really complicated. And we collectively have incentives to simplify them and make them a little more alarming and make them fly a little bit more and, and get more clicks and more more eyeballs. So we probably deserve a little bit of the skepticism. And I think, uh, again, like Laying out your case every single time is one limited answer to that very big problem. I wouldn't say it's the entire answer. I also think Mm -hmm. that people's views evolve over time. And I think that happens with voters a little bit, too. We assume that everybody is dug in. And I think that's probably true for millions and millions and millions of people. But I think there are other people who evolve, who will check in or out of the system, or who will come to see things in a mm-hmm. different way five years from now or 10 years from now than they do right now or tomorrow. Okay. So as a publicly funded organization, does NPR need to approach questions of objectivity or coverage differently than, say, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or even Fox News? I, I certain I certainly hope not. I mean, there's an entire thing that we could go through about um, the public funding. Uh, local public radio stations are started in communities across the country. They get the largest single source of funding from just listeners who call in on these pledge drives, and they also get a small percentage of of government funding, which helps mm-hmm. for various things that they do. NPR then sells them programming. So NPR, I think, right. is pretty well insulated from like some congressional appropriation or or whatever. Yeah, is they've that, tried over you know, the different times. Is that, yeah. Yeah, is, that, is that pure and ideal? I don't know. But we could raise the same question about the advertisers of any given podcast or of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. How do they, and, and how does the desire to please those advertisers shape the the news coverage? I think the starting point is that we're all imperfect. We're all struggling with that. And we all kind of come from a point of view. There is this ideal that I think is was never true and is definitely outdated of like purely objective reporting, just the facts. I think it was once called the voice from nowhere. You know, like there's just a voice yeah. telling you the facts. And yeah. I don't think that yeah. that's, that's like a real thing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a guy from Indiana um, I have a particular education. I have a particular set of experiences. I've interviewed thousands of people around the world, and I bring all that to the story that I have to tell. And then I kind of mediate that story in my news organization. I go back and forth with an editor who has a bunch of experiences and ideas, and maybe multiple editors and a producer and any number of other people. And then it gets mediated again because we put it on the radio and it needs to be exactly a certain length. Sure. And so my point is that the funding is not the sole influence or even necessarily a big one. But when you're thinking about it, don't you want more listeners? Because obviously liberals and Democrats like NPR. It's not like that's the trope. Um, it's not one that conservatives listen to a lot. Um, um, do you, do you think would, you I need to be broader the, ranging? Ooh, okay. I, I would argue There's with been different you there. Studies, but, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, the, and NPR asks listeners uh, not exactly about their partisan affiliation, but do you identify as conservative, liberal, middle of the road. Um, And there are very large percentages in all of those categories. I think in recent years, with more of the polarization of media, there are probably more liberals than conservatives self-identified. And yet we have millions of all kinds of listeners. And as someone who's worked for the organization- And these are NPR internal studies? Do you know the percentage? These are NPR internal studies. Years ago, it was about one-third, one-third, one-third. I think if I went and got the information more recently, we would find that it's probably more liberals and fewer conservatives and a lot of people uh, middle of the road. But I am confident that of the, I don't know, 50-some million people who use NPR routinely, that you would find many millions in all of those categories. And I'm even happy, if you've got time, to tell you anecdotally Mm -hmm. why I think that would be the case. Sure. Um, I, for years, I, for years, I mean, I've covered wars. I've covered the Pentagon. I've run into a lot of U.S. military people who, uh, as a group, are more likely to lean conservative than not. And they're also interested in the world. 
And NPR covers the world, which a lot of news organizations don't, or they do it in a very shallow way. And they get interested in NPR while they're abroad, and it's often accessible abroad, and they come home and continue listening when they're on a base at home or, or when they are retired. Uh, you go out into red states, rural red states, and you find uh, farmers and, and people in rural communities who do a lot of driving, and they're listening to their NPR affiliates in their home states. It's their communities listening to the radio and getting informed on the world, which really matters to a rural state because they're selling their products around the world. Um, NPR right. is not just New York or whatever headquarters of a news organization. They're based in mm -hmm. hundreds of community stations across the country, and that's every kind of state because it's all the states. And that is right. why there's every kind of person listening. Okay. Uh, that's a very nice ad for NPR. Um, but let me ask you a question. You, you do have one the question. listener. I gave you I'm the teasing truth, you. My friend. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Uh, NPR uh, caught Elon Musk's ire in April. He labeled NPR's Twitter account state affiliated media, a label he also applied to the BBC. He later revised the label to government funded media. By the way, he is government funded himself. Um, how much does publicly funding put a target on the back? What, how did you, you, NPR responded by, quitting Twitter, essentially. Their last tweet was on April 12th. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this, and do you think it was the right decision? Sure. Well, I've, I find it interesting. It's not something that I did personally. I'm still on Twitter, uh, and NPR yeah. left us as employees free to do what we wanted to do, and I'm still there. I think I still find you there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, I do. I, uh, I, I never promised to get off or not. Exactly, exactly. I, I never get off. It's, I, I was there first. That's my argument. <laughs> but in yeah, any case, never. So, so I'm still there because I believe in talking to lots of different kinds of people and communicating with lots of different kinds of people. Um, uh, mm -hmm. NPR made its decision partly for the safety of its correspondence overseas. And I think this is a real argument. Uh, when you're a journalist and you travel overseas, as I have done, you want to make sure that people understand and treat you as a journalist and not some kind of government spy. Because when they mm -hmm. think you're a spy, it massively increases your uh, risk of being detained, perhaps in a very, very bad way. It's a real thing. But there was another reason that they gave for dropping off of Twitter, which I found particularly interesting. And it was essentially the business case for not spending NPR's time on Twitter. They argued we're not getting any return on investment for the time that we spend posting all these stories on Twitter because of the however many people see a tweet, not that many of them necessarily click on links. It is rather inefficient. Mm -hmm. doesn't as work. A delivery. It, it is. And, I, and, I, and as a result, yeah. Twitter then gets advertising revenue from people looking at Twitter, but the news organization doesn't get any advertising revenue for people clicking through to the story. And I, I think there's probably something to that business case. What did you all feel internally when he said you're state-affiliated media? I think we learned something about Elon Musk from the fact that he, uh, the, the fact that he did that. It was, I guess, a little annoying, but uh, there are periodic controversies about uh, the news organization that I work for, as would be the case at any news organization that I, I work for. I feel like I've been around long enough that I've been through a few of these things. Yeah. <laughs> so I also recently interviewed Naomi Klein about her book, Doppelganger, and she had an interesting, maybe Canadian take, suggesting that public broadcasting should have a larger remit, maybe even owning social media platforms or creating them. She proposed a BBC-run Twitter, for example. Any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. What do you think the odds are of that happening in the United States, given our politics at the moment? Uh, well, so zero. there we go. So maybe we should talk about the thing that's practical. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, if if if, uh, if there were a public media organization that wanted to start a social media platform, I guess they could try it and it would just be in the marketplace and we would find out if it would um, if it would succeed. I mean, the thing that made Twitter a success uh, to the extent that it was and maybe still is a success, I mean, I guess it's still there in any case, was mm -hmm. that it was the, the clash uh, of all kinds of people, that you could be not famous and suddenly talking to someone who was famous, mm -hmm. that you could be wildly to the left and be watching the uh, thoughts and ideas of somebody wildly to the right. Um, in fact, that yeah. actually turned out to be like what, what made it a depressing site for a lot of people. But I guess you'd have to to ask uh, if if public media could do that, could they make it that kind of really broad marketplace of ideas, or would people find that just way too controversial? I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. It's sort of a panopticon, right? <laughs> Speaking of prisons, it feels like that sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let me ask you last question then, since you just thought about everybody watching each other. And in this case, not trying to get along, but it could be used to try to get along where you see other people's points of view. How do you think Lincoln would do on something like that on social media? Ooh, um, I have some thoughts about that. I think that Go he ahead. would probably let a lot of trolls pass without comment. Um, one of the things that I realized in studying Lincoln that I had not before was that although he's eloquent with his words, he also used a lot of silences. In fact, he would even be silent to the point of being almost deceptive with his allies about what his plans and intentions were. And he did not often answer attacks unless he saw a purpose in it for him. And that's something uh, that I try to emulate myself when I'm on social media. I will sometimes respond to someone's angry remark or, in my view, intemperate remark or just harsh, ridiculous attack. But if I respond, I'm not just there to call them an asshole. Uh, I will respond in a way that gets out a message that I think is valuable for them to hear and also for the other people who will read that conversation. I will say something about me, something about NPR, something about the story that we're covering that I will take the opportunity Mm -hmm. of that conflict to send out. And that is a thing that I learned from studying Lincoln. So he wouldn't just say, you know, dunk or or put up a meme, a dank meme or things like that. No, I mean, he would would mock people. Uh, I mean, he. there was a guy when he was a younger he man, he wrote he wrote a newspaper article that mocked a man so severely the guy eventually challenged him to a duel. Uh, there's more to the story oh. than that, but it started with a newspaper article. Uh, he, could, he could get a dig in, but when he was at his best, as he nearly always was in his later career, he would only do that for a purpose. He would have his own strategic purpose in mind when he spoke out at all. Well, on that note, I think he'd be great on social media. Uh, uh, Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate the discussion. It was very lively and I fun. enjoyed this. Thank you. You just said Lincoln would be great on social media, but you really think that? I do. I think he's, because he's so good. I mean, look, the Gettysburg Address, I think it was, it's a sh- very short little thing, and it's one of the greatest pieces of writing in history. He knew how to be pithy. But Steve just described to you as someone who used a lot of silences, who mm-hmm. would only use digs or answer attacks if there was a gain for him. Like, does that feel popular? That's why he'd be good at it. He'd be a professional tweeter. He wouldn't be an impulse tweeter. I mean, I consider myself a bit of a professional tweeter. I, I wait. I wait and watch. I heard you on um, Pivot bragging about how you had more followers than Einstein. Einstein, yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. It was just the guy. Do you think that that Lincoln would be more popular than you? Oh, yeah. He'd be hugely popular. I mean, of course, all these like stupid chodes would be like, you're so woke. To Lincoln? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Lincoln would be woke. Yeah, I think Lincoln would just be silent and only speak once in a while. And I hardly see silence anymore on social media. It would be perfect. It would be the perfect rejoinder. He was very good at that. All right. Well, that is one of Him and Mark Twain, I would love to see on Twitter. Mark Twain would be great on Twitter. Great on Twitter. I'm just saying some of these people would be, they already expressed themselves in that way. Kara, if you ever retire, you should start a stable of like parody accounts for all these people. You know what? We just interviewed (laughs) Uh, New York Times Pitchbot, the guy who mm-hmm. does it. And I love him. And I think he's the best. I, I couldn't get better than that. So I think okay. I'll just, I'll let him hold the crown. Well, I think we live in a world where there is pressure not to be silent. And there is pressure not to engage with people you disagree with, as Steve was describing. You sounded actually very surprised in a moment in that interview where he, where Steve said how Trump was similar to Lincoln. Well, I now get his point. I think he was saying that um, that they're charismatic people. Like, you can't deny the charisma of, of either of them, I think. so. And he was saying that they're both exceptionally good at using the media. That's right. Yeah, in their own ways. You could say that about JFK with TV, with Franklin mm-hmm. Delano Roosevelt with radio, um, and Lincoln himself just in speeches. I think mm-hmm. and he was it's astonishing giver of speeches and, and in and debates and things like that. Yeah. So I think every president has their um, skills in that way. And there's certain presidents that really stick out depending on what the media of the day is. And as I've written many, many times, Trump is the greatest Twitter troll in history. The other part of that conversation I thought was really interesting was around the role of journalists and mm-hmm. objectivity in media. And he talked about the view from nowhere. He called it voice from nowhere. He might view from nowhere kind of objective journalism. Mm-hmm. But the history of newspapers in this country is actually objectivity is only a 100-year standard. Yeah, the history right. was that they were very partisan papers mm-hmm. in the times when people like Lincoln or Jefferson and others were, sure were yeah. writing. Sure were. They, it's, a new, it's a new concept. And mm-hmm. it's also I, – I, I have never hewed to it very much. I thought that – Kara, you're not into objectivity? 
No, I'm not. I am. No, but I'm, I, you know what? Let, we're going to go into an interview next week with Christiane Amanpour, and I think she's right. Truthful, mm-hmm. not neutral. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly how I think of journalism. Um, you yeah. can have a point of view, um, but it should be based in truth and it should be based in reporting. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I started All Things D and then later Recode was because I w- felt that reporters weren't allowed to say what they knew and get, have a point of view after mm-hmm. doing reporting. Having I, We called it reported analysis, and I thought it was much more helpful to audience than anything else, because these people knew what they were talking about and they could come to a conclusion. And it's the difference, I think, between something I discussed with Walter Isaac and being a camera and actually telling you what the photograph says. And I, I'm I'm the latter. And there's a difference, by the way, between that and what some have advocated for, I think, Wes Lowry being one around moral clarity, moral clarity, journalistic, having some kind of moral clarity, right? I kind of agree with that a little bit, too. You think you have moral clarity? And some things, once you do reporting, you have to have the facts and then mm-hmm. make a conclusion, and that's okay. And I think journals get nervous about it, and they shouldn't. I think the word ob- objectivity, it just makes you not say, like, on one hand, on this hand, Trump thinks the election was stolen. On the other, others, most everyone else, and proof shows that it's not. The first part, you don't even need to. You just say, that's a lie, and this is what the actual truth is. And, Although and there's this a conversation that's playing out in, you know, slacks and newsrooms everywhere and people are mincing words, afraid to use words like lie or racist. And Well, Trump's a liar. There, I'm not afraid. Yeah. And he's a racist. So there you go. <laughs> I, I Steve also had his version of be truthful, not neutral, seemed to be be specific, not objective. Be specific. Okay. I think truthful, not neutral, just sounds better. I don't know. It's make, I get it right away. <laughs> Christiane is a But specificity is, a, is, is important. Is a lot of people come out with yeah. very broad points of view on yeah, all sure. kinds of issues that they're underinformed about. And specificity urges a level of kind of informedness yeah, it's facts. before you speak. Facts. Yes. Facts. Yeah. That's true. But sometimes you can tell people facts and they don't really care. They don't. Oh, well, I don't like those facts. So it's like, oh, okay. They just like the headlines, which are now missing from Twitter. Yeah, I was, you know, it's just at some point, it's, you know, whatever it happens to be, it's, uh, I was making a point on a front line that b- b- broadcast yesterday Um where Elon was arguing with me about COVID, and I was he was he was say, acting like he knew what he was talking about, and I was like, "You actually don't." And I kept saying the word science. I'm so shocked everyone in my social media feed who's been an expert on everything over the last Israel. year. They're like experts on yeah, experts on the vaccine. Now they're experts on constitutional law. They're experts on. I'm like, wow, so much time. Yeah. I was you know interesting. Someone asked me why I didn't comment on what was going on in Israel on social media. I said because I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, why would I? I, I? I'm putting I'm putting out stories of people I think know what they're talking about and saying, yeah. please read this. This helped me. But I, it was fascinating. I was like, we want your opinion. I was like, I don't have one. Mm-hmm. How about that? I'm not. I, I'm going to like read the people who really know what they're talking about. Yeah. The only thing I could say about about that is I'm not for massacres. All right. Well, we have Christiana Amapur on to discuss that with us, and we're going to be covering. We're covering by talking to people who know more. Yep. On this. And Scott has a conversation out this week as well on his podcast uh, with Fareed Zakaria, which is worth checking out, I think. I got Absolutely. Into that. Fareed has been doing great coverage, I think, over at CNN, as yep. is Christian. All right. You want to read us out, Kara? Yep. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Christian Castro-Rossell, Megan Cunane, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Kate Gallagher. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan. And our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a stovepipe hat for Halloween. If not, you get to go to Halloween as Donald Trump again. But in any case, go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network and us. We'll be back on Monday with more. 